and welcome to the Text in Us podcast. I'm your host, George Fricks, and I'm here with my co-host, L. Grover Fricks, to resume our discussions in Exodus chapter 3. Hey, we got the book right this time. We did. Look at us. Okay, one of the biggest chapters in Exodus, right? I mean, we're going to have some curse sections or plague sections, right, to wade through, but this is a big one, so should probably jump in and I should stop talking about it. Are you talking about theme and not length? Yes. Okay. Yes. The content. Yes. <laughs> yes. Uh, I was like, boy, uh, you must have some verses that I don't because <laughs> it's a shorter chapter. <laughs> there is just a lot in here. Right. Right. And I'm A lot sure of important stuff. There'll be lots of buried treasure waiting for us in the uh, plague sections too. So right. here we go. Book of Shemoth, Scroll of Shemoth, chapter three. Moshe was shepherding the flock of Yitro, his leftovers or abundance, his father-in-law, Kohen of Midian. He led the flock behind the desert. He came to the mountain of the Elohim, Choreva, the sword. An angel of Yahweh was seen by him in a flame of fire from the midst of a bush. He looked, look here, the bush was burning in fire, but the bush was not eaten. Moshe said, please, oh, I would turn. I would see this great sight. Why does it not burn the bush? Yahweh saw that he turned to look. God called to him from the middle of the bush. He said, Moshe, Moshe. He said, look, here I am. He said, do not draw near here. Pluck your shoes from upon your feet for the place that you stand upon is holy dirt. He said, I am God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Yitzchak, the God of Yaakov. Moshe concealed his face, for he was afraid to gaze toward the Elohim. Yahweh said, seeing I have seen my people that are in Mitzrayim, they are driven into the ground with hard labor. I have shem'ad their shriek from those that drive them. I know their pains. I have descended to snatch them out of the hand of Mitzrayim and to cause them to ascend from that land to a good land, a wide land gushing with milk and honey, to the place of the Kanaani and the Chiti and the Emori and the Prisi and the Chivi and the Yavusi. Now look here, the shriek of the sons of Israel has come to me. Also, I have seen the oppression with which Mizraim oppressed them. Now walk, I will send you to Pero. Cause my people, the sons of Israel, to leave from Mizraim. Moshe said to the Elohim, Who am I that I should walk to Pero, that I could cause the sons of Israel to leave from Mizraim? He said, For I will be with you. This is a sign for you that I have sent you. When you have caused the people to leave from Mitzrayim, you shall serve the Elohim upon this mountain. Moshe said to the Elohim, Look here, I am coming to the sons of Israel. I will say to them, God of your fathers has sent me to you. They will say to me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moshe, I will be whom I will be. He said, So you will say to the sons of Israel, I will be has sent me to you. Again, God said to Moshe, so you will say to the sons of Israel, Yahweh, God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, God of Yitzchak, and the God of Yaakov has sent me to you. This is my name forever. This is my remembrance to era after era. Walk, gather the elders of Israel, say to them, Yahweh, God of your fathers, has been seen by me. God of Abraham, Yitzchak, and Yaakov, saying, Visiting, I have visited you, and I have done for you in Mitzrayim. 
He said, I will cause you to ascend from being pressed into the ground by the hard labor of Mitzrayim to the land of the Kanaani, the Chiti, the Amori, the Prizi, the Chivi, and the Yavusi to the land gushing milk and honey. They will shem'ah your voice. You shall come with the elders of Yisrael to the king of Mitzrayim. You will say to him, Yahweh, God of the Hebrews, befell upon us. Now, oh, that we would walk, please, a three-day path in the desert. Oh, that we might slaughter to Yahweh our God. I know that the king of Mitzrayim will not give to you to walk unless in a hand of strength. I will send my hand. I will strike the Mitzrayim and all my wonders that I will do in their midst. After that, he will send you. I will give chen to this people in the eyes of the Mitzrayim. It will be when you walk, you will not walk empty. Every woman, every woman will ask from her neighborhood and her guests in her house, clinking things of silver and clinking things of gold and dresses. You will put them upon your sons and upon your daughters, and you will snatch Mitzrayim. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Woo! Uh, so full disclosure, I took a semester long class at Hebrew university just on Exodus and, uh, it was taught from the perspective of the documentary hypothesis. And so just shout out to my professor, um, who already was, you know, a turbulent fellow is a turbulent fellow, um, renowned for his sticking to the documentary hypothesis long after it is popular. He's still cited in papers as being like, that guy's still out there dumbling down. Um, but I'm about to disagree with like five weeks of classes. <laughs> Just in this one chapter. Just, yes. Yeah. We okay. sawed apart that thing piece by piece and arbitrarily assigned which one was J and which one was E and oh blah, 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 blah. So if that's what you're here to listen to, everyone, I'm sorry. It's not happening. Continuity of the text, in my opinion, if you want to look at that breakdown somewhere, you can just Google it. You can look at uh, J, E, P, outline, Exodus 3, I'm sure. Um, you'll find a couple different versions that can pique your interest. But of course, that's not what we're doing. We're just going to walk through it like we always do. Yeah. All right. Well, and with that, I have two sections prepared uh, for us to divide this chapter. You could probably divide it into much smaller portions, and that would be just fine. But we're going to do two sections to keep it simple. Sure. Um Part one is going to be verses one through 10. Part two is verses 11 through 22. Pretty sure. even division. Um, I mean, so this conversation keeps going into chapter four. So it's not even like they're neat narrative portions. Moshe has more objections. Oh, yeah. Coming yeah. Up. There's a lot. Yeah. Um, so let's dive in. All to right. Part one. As we do. Swimming always. Dory would be proud. Right. So Moshe was shepherding the flock of whom of his name change of this guy. So before his of the name, leftovers <laughs> or abundance. Um, so before his name was Ruel, here his name is Yitro. 
Um, and that yeter can refer to leftover as in like a remnant of God caused a great plague to come and of a couple people were left over. Or it can be leftovers in terms of like you pour your wine into the glass and there's a yeter that comes up down the sides okay like the extra amount yeah it can be either of those i kind of i mean i would be curious about the leftover perspective like did he survive from something is he like a remnant of gentiles who believe that melchizedek was a kind of part of or something i could get into some midrash about that or some christian midrash about that but um but I don't know why his name changed, and that certainly does lend some credence in the Doc Hypo bucket of like, well, we have different traditions about what his name is. There's no possibility that I can see that it's two different guys because yeah. they say his father-in-law, which is a sketchy word, but his father-in-law and then specifically Kohen of Midian. Right. So yeah, it's a mystery, um, and I, I don't. I can't think of any significance behind leftovers being noteworthy. Right. Well, um, he is an abundant guy, right? He had hospitality and generosity. So yeah, I suppose I'm kind of reading into leftovers, into my own culture of, oh boy, I have to eat the leftovers. Oh, right. No, but this is good leftovers. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Good leftovers. Uh, okay. Also, I mean, what's wrong with my leftovers, George Freaks? <laughs> uh, nothing. Just kidding. They're just leftovers. So, you know, it's not the same as eating something hot meal right up front but no okay so different kind of leftovers here right what if now this is sketchy (laughs) disclaimer but what if neighbor of god was like his title you know because he's a kohen to be a kohen is to be someone who dwells in the courts of god waiting on god you know being in the gates of god so what if that's like his title and his real name is yitra Hmm. Interesting. Yeah, I don't know. Um, you know, there's this, there's an interesting parallel, which I don't recall if we touched on this last chapter we might have between uh, the Kohen in the desert, right? Mm-hmm. We had Melchizedek before. Right. We have Yitro mm-hmm. now. Right. Um, and uh, they play a significant role in the story and how they interact with the main character. So previously being right. uh, Avraham, right. who had just gone and rescued his boy, his, his family, right? His nephew. Um, his nephew and all of the people and brought them back out of their servitude, uh, potentially, right? That's what they would be made into, I would presume, out of being captured. Um, yeah, I don't know if it's Lot's whole household or if it's just Lot. But that's interesting. But certainly, yes, I can see a parallel between Merchitzedek and Boel here, or Yitro, or whatever his name is. It's going to switch to Yeter in a bit, by the way. Right. Which, mystery. Um, that would just be leftovers or abundance rather than his leftovers or abundance. Yeah, uh, I don't. That's my theory. One of them is a title. Um, different traditions being stitched together. One thing that at least the documentary hypothesis does have going for it is they do say that whoever redacted, so whoever pulled all the text together and stitched them together, they do acknowledge that there weren't any edits made at that point. 
which in our culture is crazy. Um, you know, if you were like pulling different fan fiction together in an anthology or something and you were cutting out pieces and gluing them into a nice comic strip, you would change the names so that they matched right at the very least. Sure. Yeah. But in their in the tradition of the documentary hypothesis, they didn't do that. They preserved the holiness of each edition and therefore left the names. So if I'm wrong um, in heaven and they are stitched together and aren't linear in the way that I think they're linear, at least has that going for it. Yeah. Interesting. Um, tithing in a way is kind of like the leftovers. Hmm. That's bad what, tithing is the leftovers well claim. no no, no. Uh, the <laughs> well the promise of abundance the giving the first fruits to god still because uh you're trusting you know is i'm trying to think of leftovers in a good sense like I'm, you're talking about right it's like you have more than enough fabric to make your outfit with and so you trim off the end because that would make the garment too big and then the mm. extra fabric that you have you can make into a tapestry or a quilt or whatever mm. that's okay. the overabundance that's the leftovers okay. Okay. for making the garment all right all right well never mind then <laughs> my connections don't work <laughs> That's all right. It's a weird concept. Uh, let's, yeah. Why let's, is he going behind the desert? What does that mean? Yeah, that's uh, a good question. Let's look at the second half of verse one before we get to the 20 minute mark. <laughs> no. um, yeah, so he led the flock behind the desert, uh, which is just a weird thing to say in general. Like, what does behind the desert mean? Right. Uh, KGV says the backside of the desert. Uh, NIV says the far side of the desert and ESV says the west side of the desert. So they're all, I, you know, ESV seems to be making a geographical choice choice there of where they think the mountain is huh. and the desert compared to the mountain that they think is Mount Sinai. Uh, Sinai, yeah. So Horev. Horev, yeah. Um, so, you know, whatever is going on there behind the desert, there's something there. Rashi says that he is going to a place where the other uh, the other people in the region are not growing their crops. He's keeping his animals out of their fields, which is something that we've seen in the Midrash before with the patriarchs and the way that they respect the people around them and don't just let their animals kind of graze in other people's pastures. Sure. Um, and it's also something that Rashi pointed out uh, that we see with David later in the text. Okay. Shepherding his flocks in a strange location. So um, they put that towards uh, Moshe's character and trying to avoid... Um, you know, his flock eating people's crops. Gotcha. Um, so. Another non-confrontational bro. Yeah. In our lineup. Uh, the thing about it being West is weird because there's kind of two main lines of thought about where it is. It's either Jordan kind of verging into Saudi Arabia and west of that is just in mm. Israel. Right. And then the other option is on the Sinai Peninsula, um, which is owned by Egypt. Um, and it's like west of that is the Mediterranean and or the Red Sea. Right. And or Egypt. So I don't know what they're talking about there, ESV. But um, true facts also when I 
Googled academic opinion on um, the placement of Mount Horev because I only remembered like two of the places. Uh, it's only Wisconsin. So you heard it here first. Oh, yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah, right next to the garden. Mm-hmm. Um, right. Yeah. yeah. Uh, new Mormonism in the Midwest. Right. And then uh, the angel of Yahweh descended and gave Moshe tater tot. Right. Yeah. Casserole. Uh, <laughs> yes. Okay. So he came to the mountain of the Elohim. Yep. Which we've kind of talked about that word in a new light, uh, given some more recent work right. that you've done. Right. And I think it really fits here because we have this continual switch between Yahweh, God, and the Elohim. Yeah. Um, and again, the narrator is using that term a little bit more like later it's going to say Moshe concealed his face for he was afraid to gaze toward the Elohim. Right. You know? So it seems like maybe God's not the only being present here or um, and my personal favorite theory, of course, I, which I think we talked about way back early in Genesis. We talked about Chorev potentially being like the site of Eden because Chorev means sword, the sword. Right. Um, you can also try to do something with it meaning dry. But the reason we have we've got a couple of words for dry, the connection between swords and dryness is because there's. Um, the idea in Hebrew that swords are thirsty for mm, blood. And yeah. so it'll be like he chased him with the mouth of his sword because the mouth wants to dry it's your devouring. blood. Devouring, yeah. Vampire swords. Um, <laughs> so e- even if it does mean dry, it's dry in the way that a sword is dry before it's been wetted, right? Um, and so that's why I went with sword rather than, because usually we try to make some kind of geographic connection which there's lots of words for geographic dryness. Sure. So anyway, if we've got a mountain of the Elohim with a sword, that makes me think of Eden, right? Um, Oh, yeah, totally. Uh, 100%. I'm I'm with you there. Or it got wiped out by the flood, but yeah. Details. Okay. uh, An angel of Yahweh was seen by him. We've got that uh, little phrase again, right? It's not that things are appearing where they weren't before. Right. It's just that things are allowing themselves to be seen by humans, which is a little bit terrifying. Um, In a flame of fire from the midst of a bush. Right. So a lot of things going on there. Um, First off, uh, an angel of Yahweh. So right. um, that kind of goes with what you were talking about with the switching between the Elohim, the angel, and God, right? This back and forth. The Midrash says uh, that the angel there is Michael. They kind of talk about, you know, what angel could it possibly be? <laughs> sure. Right? Uh, and go through all of that. I know so many angels, so we really do need to narrow it down. Right. And it is because it is Michael that. Moshe notices this because wherever Michael goes, there also is the presence of God. So uh, they kind of throw those two together as to why you can have an, an angel mentioned here, but also it seems like God is talking to Moshe. So who is it? Who's talking? Who's in the bush? Right. Um, is it an angel? Is it God? They would say at first it's Michael the archangel, but Michael always is accompanied by the presence of God. Mm-hmm. And so then God comes and speaks. So. Okay, mystery. 
Yeah, the thing that complicates that is that um, angels are messengers, right? It's the same word. It means to be full of the works of someone else or the words of someone else. And an angel or a messenger, if you're being sent by Tudor England or whatever, they would say, Henry VIII declares by this word all Franciscans are to be thrown out of Britain. Um, Sad. Uh, But you would say it as if it was you. You wouldn't say like, my lord the king doth proclaim. You would say it as him because you're being an emissary of the king. And so it's also complex that when God refers to God's self and it looks like he's talking about, again, God's self, um, it could still be an angel talking, but yeah. Um, so, I mean, one way you could look at that is the angel is kind of doing that in that the bush is burning and not being consumed. So that's almost the sign, right? Uh, the uh, an exchange of a verbal. It's a visual calling out to him, and then it says in verse four that. Uh, God saw that he turned and looked, and then God spoke to him. So it's almost like this multi-step thing. Of right. if, if Moshe had not turned and seen and noticed in like a, oh, what's that? Not just a, oh, hey, right. bush <laughs> on fire, right? Um, that God would not have said something, right? right? So there's uh, potentially some layers to that that would build into that case of the angel and then God. Right. Uh, another possibility, always the case, the angel is God. Uh, you know, people talk about the angel of the Lord being Jesus. Oh, That's right. more sketchy to uh-huh. me because it says an angel, not the angel. Another possibility is that it is God, but they're saying it's an angel because they're trying to set you up to remember the Eden story. And they're not as worried about literalism as we are. Right. And so they throw in the angel just like Matthew throws in a donkey. So that makes he makes sure we remember Zechariah 9. Um, so that could be the case. And then, uh, you know, shout out to the Catholics. They say that this is the spirit of Mary because, uh, you know, being burned by a fire but not being set aflame is apparently um, the same as being pregnant and yet virginal. So, oh, okay, interesting. Why not? Yeah, um, I was, there's some conversation around that still in the midrash, uh, firstly around the bush, and uh, I noticed here you just have in the midst of a bush. Um, they talk about it as a thorn bush. Do you know if there's any sort of designation there of the kind of bush in the word that they might draw out? Oh, it's definitely a thorn bush versus just a nondescript bush. You know, I have lodged in my mind as well that it's a thorn bush, um, and I'm trying to see why I made that particular call. I do have a... um, a list up in front of me of kinds of bushes which are prone to spontaneous combustion, <laughs> which Fascinating. I always thought was like a weird church thing because I don't know. I heard some preachers be like, you know, this one have been that unusual because sometimes bushes burst into flame over there. And I was like, that can't be true. But according to the uh, University of Washington horticulture department, it is true. Um, and the list of plants that they say m- are likely to ignite in the summer are juniper, Leyland cypress, Italian cypress, rosemary, 
who knew? Watch out for your rosemary, folks. Oh, yeah. Uh, eucalyptus and some ornamental grasses. So the ones that stand out to me from that list um, are the cypresses, of course, because right. there that are be, cypresses over yeah. there. Um, also, the Dictamnus albus, which is a pretty flowering um, a, a, a pink pink magenta type flower looks like lupine situation Mm, Um, yes the pink magenta bush please (laughs) yes i don't know um but yes do you have any that are on fire (laughs) you go to the nursery hello uh i'm here for your plant which is most likely to catch on fire randomly um because i want to hear the voice of god guess what we have the bible it's because it has to do with um prick the word means to prick when it's uh when it's a verb so i should change my translation to reflect that um a prickly bush yeah Uh, that might be a little bit late because we see that more in the aramaic um strong's just goes out and says blackberry bush which is kind of funny like what a call to make i'm not sure if blackberries grow in the levant but you know power to you gotta move with confidence yeah, I mean, they certainly grow in western Washington. There you go. We're um, back to Wisconsin being the true place oh, yeah. where everything happens. There we go. Well, so the, the Midrash nonetheless go with Thornbush for their translation. Um, I mean, they're probably right. I repent. Well, and they say because the Thornbush produces the most harm uh, and God dwelling in it, was him saying that he shares in the suffering of the Israelites, and they quote Isaiah 63, in all their affliction, he is afflicted. Mm -hmm. Um, And so symbolically, right, choosing a thorn bush for this is to show, uh, in one conversation, God sharing in that affliction. Um, Another interpretation is that thorn bushes are easy to get into because their thorns face inwards, uh, but hard to get out of. Uh, because when you try to remove your hand, it's caught. So it's talking about the situation of the Israelites in Egypt, uh, but also because it's on fire and not being consumed, it's also talking about the preservation of God in that situation. Yep. Yep. I'm just distracted remembering a certain rabbi who dragged us through thorn bushes one time. Yeah. Pulling them out for weeks later. But who knows? Maybe the angel of the Lord was in the midst of that. And I missed it because I was having a mental breakdown. You were preserved. I was preserved. Um, Okay. Oh, boy. Nonetheless, Uh, nevertheless. Nevertheless. Nevertheless, uh, the bush was not eaten. No, it wasn't. Um, Which reminds me of our God is a consuming fire, right? hmm. Um, Which... Uh, is fascinating because he is a consuming fire, but here it wasn't consumed, right? It's this push and pull between the the smoking wick. I do not yeah. blow out, and yet he is still a consuming fire. Right. Okay. Uh, Moshe then talks to himself or the sheep, you know, no shame. Um, in- I would imagine there's a lot of talking to yourself in this kind of <laughs> occupation. Um, which, interesting that he you know, leaves Egypt, becomes a shepherd, which Uh is, as we learned earlier, the uh, disgusting occupation that the Egyptians don't like. Right. 
Um, oh yeah. Yeah. Extra layers of shame in the yeah. midst of his identity crisis. Um, and he says, Oh dang. <laughs> yeah. Well, he, for my advanced Hebrew students out there, he speaks in the cohortative tense. So he's stating something with the desire. So, Oh, that I would turn. I, mean, I you would can, see this. I great mean, oh dang still fits that <laughs> interpretation. <laughs> oh dang. <laughs> I guess <laughs> there's lots of ways to use christianized profanity and i suppose that is one of them um but yeah i mean there's lots of beautiful sermons you can preach out of here uh about the sacredness the holiness of curiosity right um there's so many good midrashim and um ideas about the bush had been burning the whole time but moshe right. was the only one to notice or moshe was the only one to who stop and look to stop and go over uh, and then he hears uh, a voice, which I am forever marked by the Prince of Egypt uh, movie canon um, of the voice coming yeah. out and the amazing like score behind right. it. Um, but yeah, it says Yahweh saw that he turned to look, um, which again, it doesn't even say that he had come over yet. God sees our intention and the desire of our heart and honors that even before we've gone through the discipline of bothering to do the work, yeah, which is amazing and so gracious. You know, if I was leaning into my drill sergeant Christianity, which I think there's a place at the table for it, be like, look, those who seek God, who pursue him will find it. So get off the path. Go off to the bush, um, you know, and once you get close enough, you'll hear or you will see God. But it, that's not what it says. It says he just saw that he turned. He turned. Um, and maybe that means turned off the path, but it seems like turning his head. It doesn't say that he walked over. He says, don't come over here. Right. Um, and he says, Moshe, Moshe, twice. Yeah, not just Moshe, Moshe, but you got exclamation points here. Well, Hebrew doesn't have punctuation marks, so that's my uh, little flourish there that I didn't think about coming in from the English of how we annotate a um, exclamation. Yeah, the midrash says that even the when they do add in the cantillation marks later, which are kind of used for punctuation, yep. there isn't anything in there to designate like a comma or a pause between calling out the name. Yeah, and so they say that it's to show the urgency of God's call to him, uh, like a man who is overburdened and cries out all in one breath, somebody, somebody, come quickly and take this load. And mm. so there's an urgency behind him calling out Moshe, Moshe. Um, and he responds with something interesting as well, the look, here I am. Right. Which is significant. Uh, because we've seen that a multiple a number of times in the text, and it tends to be a uh, something that's said between the father and son relationship, right? Mm, right. The father calls out, the son says, "Here I am." Right. Etc. Um, and so uh, the rabbis also note that it's interesting that he chooses to respond with that language. Right. That's Abraham and Yitzchak at the Akedah. Yeah. Yep. Um, and so uh, one way they explain that is that when God called out to him, Moshe, Moshe, he called out to him in the voice of Moshe's father. Oh. Um, and I like that because it's almost a 
calling him back to mm, his identity his identity to the family of God and I think there's a couple of points in this chapter that speak towards that narrative uh-huh. um, but it starts with that um, and so yeah continuing to verse five unless you have something there uh, I was just thinking that the, the saying the name twice out of a sense of urgency reminds me of when there's a uh, baby poop emergency in our house and oh yeah need- <laughs> calling from across the house yeah. i need auxiliary support yep <laughs> yep yep okay nope verse five yeah so verse five he draw uh he said do not draw near here um and this is kind of interesting because this we see him talk about the holy dirt yes yes pluck your that. shoes from your feet which is pretty interesting language not take them off could you remove your, your shoes, please? It's pluck them off. Yes. Um, Usually we see that pluck language around deliverance, like I'll pluck you from the snare of the fowler type thing. Um, mm. So that's what it reminds me of. Okay. But yes, it does feel a little bit whimsical, like boop, tossing them over your shoulder. But Yeah. And what are your thoughts on the holy dirt? Well, uh, I tend to translate pretty specifically Aretz is land and Adama is dirt. So um, a couple things popped in mind. One is that it's not the holy land, it's holy dirt. Um, and this isn't even in Yisrael. So, you know, dirt is dirt can be holy wherever God is, which makes me want to shade Naaman less that he wants to take the dirt, the dirt back back with him. Um, mm. a deep cut from first Kings. I think if you're not familiar with the story, uh, and we don't tend to like that, right? We like all of our theology to be very esoteric and not grounded in the world very right. much. Like we've had all these holy trees where magical stuff happens in Genesis and in our, you know, we're really worried about idolatry and remembering that God is not embodied. He's a spirit and blah, blah, blah. And so we don't like that. And so I like that kind of incongruity that to God, the dirt is holy. Um, and that tells me that it's, you know, it's okay when we're attached to a place or a moment or a memory where we really felt that God was there. It's okay to have, uh, you know, that marked in our mind. Um, yeah. And that's what that makes me think of. And then, of course, Adama means what, George? Uh, dirt. <laughs> it does. <laughs> uh, but it also means... Uh, blood. Uh, yes, but it also means... Red. If Yes, and it also means... Oh, my goodness. Humanity. Okay, okay. <laughs> um, right. And so, of course, those are all like vowelated a little bit different or spelled um, with an extra hey on the end or not or whatever. But um, there's this idea here, pluck your shoes from your feet for the place that you stand upon is holy humanity like Hmm. um don't add anything to yourself moshe because moshe is having this big identity crisis right Right. and he still looked like an egyptian when he showed up and the women the young women um portrayed him that way saw him as egyptian and so there's a reading there i think even if it's not like the peshat reading that god is saying take off these extra things you've tried to put upon yourself because the things that you stand upon your feet are already holy yeah yeah 
You have yeah. to dig a while to get to the good stuff, but there it is. Right. Well, I mean, we see a new posture being presented by God uh, when somebody's in his presence, right? He hasn't asked anybody else before uh, in a situation where they see him to right. take their shoes off. Right, which makes me think it's for the benefit of Moshe, not for the benefit of God. You right. know, like Hagar saw God full stop, and uh, it wasn't like, put a veil on or do this or do that. Right. So that makes me think... Um, There's even a bush. Right. Uh, Avraham saw God multiple times, and God was never like, put this coal on your tongue. So in my opinion, whenever God comes up with strategies like that, they're always for us to make us feel like, okay, I did the thing, so now I'm allowed to be here. Yeah. Um, I would feel like I'm going to get struck by lightning or whatever, but he gave me a way in, and so I'm going to take it. Yeah. There's also something, I think, very tangible about barefoot in the ground, um, Sensory. experience with God. You know, we see this happen later in the text as well, where God has people take their shoes off. Um, and I'm trying to think, uh, is there something with... Uh, serving in the temple and taking your shoes off? I don't remember. Don't remember. Okay. Um, I'd have to look that up. But, you know, it, it becomes a very significant part about drawing close to God, hmm. right? Um, that we see repeated later in the text. Um, and God asking people, take your shoes off. Um, interesting, though, I don't think this happens when God goes to the mountain again to receive the... Law. law when he walks up the mountain right um right so which again just furthers my idea that this is like because moshe is afraid yeah which you can now you can't some... run <laughs> 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 no uh there's a theological line there you know god making a way for us in into being in his presence so that has to do more with what we're hung up on hmm. than with what God's hung up on. Hmm. And once we don't need that anymore, he's not fixated on us doing it again. I'd have to look and see what you're saying about later in the text because I don't remember that. But you could be right. All right. Well, moving forward, verse 6. He said, I am God of your father. The God of Abraham, Yitzchak, and Yaakov. You're welcome. Thank you. Uh what is interesting there says, I am God of your father, not fathers, mm. um, which I see in your translation. So I'm I'm interested by that because it's unusual. So what is he referring to? Is he referring literally to Moshe's father? Is this another moment where he's drawing him back into the narrative? Of, I think so. I think he's not saying your fathers as in your ancestors. I'm thinking he's rooting and grounding him in his immediate familial um, experience because there's this gap there's a moment where he could be like of Pedro the king it is I raw right <laughs> um, but he doesn't and so he draws him in by saying that who is who's your daddy who is your father truly and then he lines it up and tells yeah him. Um, and that also would explain why he's extra terrified you know other than the usual reasons. Yeah. So um, he conceals his face uh, for he was afraid to gaze toward the Elohim. Right. Um, 
which is another unusual thing, right? So what's going on? Why is he so freaked out in this moment well, that he won't even look towards it? Um, towards I, the I bush, think it's not God. unusual. I think that's normal. Whenever an angel shows up, they say, do not be afraid, first thing. Yeah, but it's different than like, you know, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob never had that experience of, oh, look away, going to conceal my face. Oh, yes. He's right? definitely the first one to be like, I know what to do. If I don't look at him, I won't get fried. Um, but I think God has said, do not fear um, previously to this. Well, whatever the case might be there for why he is deciding to conceal his face of all things, right? right. Exod- um, uh, I'm sorry, Genesis 15 is where God tells Abraham not to be afraid. Right. But I think that's about your error. Yeah, yeah. Um, God speaks to him and uh, is going to cover a lot of stuff about what he wants him to do. He sure does. Um, so seeing I've seen my people that are in Mitzrayim are driven into the ground with hard labor. That's the Hagar conversation that we talked about previous chapter. Right. I've shamad their shriek. From those that drive them, I know their pains. I've descended to snatch them out of the hand of Mitzrayim and to cause them to ascend from the land to a good land, a wide land gushing with milk and honey, to the place of the Kana'ani uh, and the Chiti and the Emori and the Pritzi and the Chiti uh, and the Yavusi. My goodness. Um, so a, a, a lot going on there, a lot of interesting stuff. Um, we have the wide land gushing with milk and honey. Mm-hmm. Um, Rambam goes into a long explanation as to what that might mean. But I was curious about your thoughts on this because I know that you have looked into and studied the land gushing with milk and honey before. I sure have. I talked about it on the Baywon podcast. But um, the idea here that we usually catch is milk and honey are extra nice things right yeah Um, if it was regular things it'd be like a wide land gushing with lentils and beans (laughs) yay (laughs) but it's not it's milk and honey so first off that's lovely um and luxurious the second thing um though that we are more likely to miss is the gushing part right uh is miraculous in nature because in our world we can miss it because we can drive to walmart winko wherever you get your groceries any time of the year grab some milk grab some honey um that's because of the way that our food economy works and shipping and um you know factory farming and all of all of the above, um, that's not normal. So the times of year that you it would be possible to have milk would only be when, George? Uh, springtime. Springtime, yep. <laughs> okay, all right. <laughs> it's a deep cut. Okay, um, yeah, it would only be in spring. And the same actually goes for honey because bees need what to make honey? Uh, they need flowering uh, plants. plants. Right. So, again, plants flower in spring and summer, and so that's the time that you can have honey. And so this gushing, again, that's a river. Um, it's also a fertility word. Um, implies a continual state, not just like a lot in a giant you know, tsunami. Yeah. Um, but rather something that's happening abundantly all year. So the, I think, 
um, the original listeners, including Moshe, would have picked up on the fertility, on luxury, but also on a supernatural, miraculous tinge, um, not just tinge, an implication that if the land is continually flowing with those, um, that that has to do with a supernatural provision from God. Right. Um, and that can make a lot of us uncomfortable because that Lots theology... Of so many leftovers that theology has been widely abused, especially recently in the past, you know, hundred years um, in our country with the sure. prosperity gospel, advent of television, and- right? Yeah, and new ways to scam people and uh, rip money out of their hands. However, whenever we run across that kind of um, theology in the text, I think it's important not to jump over it because it makes us concerned. Um, that we're going to, that'll be misunderstood, um, but rather treat it the same way we treat everything else by talking about what's in there and then leaving it up to folks to apply that however um, they feel so led in their community. Right. Don't miss out on the good that God has for you just because it's been abused by others. Right. Like it's God. Yeah. That's a whole, that's a whole soapbox and we absolutely don't have time. For we it. have so much time for that. Okay. Yeah. So the Rambam talks about how, you know, for that to be possible, you need a lot of uh, accessible water and a lot of um, very healthy uh, pasture lands with, you know, vegetation for the cows to eat um, beyond just the uh, time of year, right? Uh, uh-huh. And so a lot of things have to come together for that to happen. Um, and so, um, the climate has to be good. It has to have plenty of vegetation and good water. Um, he talks about how these tend to only be found in uh, marshlands, while the heights of mountains, fruits are not very fat and good, right? So, um, yeah, there's a lots of different. I mean, there's four different types of soil in Israel, and only one of them is great works. for growing things. Mm. So. Uh, adds to the supernatural tinge. Right, right. <laughs> so the land has to be so fat and sweet to the extent that all, it all flows with the honey that comes from, right, the cultivation of the of the pollen by the bees, right, to create all that honey. So all uh-huh. of those things coming together uh, all aligns with what you were talking about, of course. Um, so, of course. Of course. Um, so, yeah, super interesting uh, you know, and it's kind of one of those phrases that we throw around a lot from a yeah. uh, uh, a kingdom perspective. Great. Right? We don't really think about the implications of that. Not always, but it makes for nice worship songs. It does. Um, and then it lists out the different people that live there. Um, yep. And this is the same as it was in Bereshit in Genesis. And so that's why they're all untranslated because we did it back then. Right. Um, but uh, I love that God in this section, um, he underlines the the pain that Yisrael has experienced, right? He doesn't try to ignore it or, you know, skiff over it. Um, he the way that God enters into relationship with us seems to be from a place of knowing, from a place of witnessing, um, and affirming 
what we've been through, (laughs) right? He doesn't just show up and immediately start barking orders or whatever. He shows up, um, even though he could because he's God. He shows up and he says, look, I've seen you. Uh, I've heard you and I know, which is an escalation, right? I've seen, heard, know. That's um, growing closer in intimacy as you progress through those phrases. Um, And I'm both going to snatch you out of the hand of Mitzrayim and bring you up, cause you to ascend, right? And we've had this whole like underworld um, tinge to Mitzrayim this whole time. Um, And so he's not just going to like snatch them out and then say, Lazarus, come out. He's going to actually bring them out, right? Which is an extra niceness. And then not just bring them out, but set them in a land of milk and honey. So again, escalation, 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 escalation. And then we hear that there are already people there, right? Yeah. <laughs> Sometimes I think when we imagine God and worse, when we teach other people about God, we're like, first things first, you got to stop doing this. You've got to you know, do this. You've got to perform the conquest, etc." But God gently, even in this paragraph, guides Moshe through who he is, being someone who has seen, has heard, and known, um, someone who will deliver them in this escalating manner. And then, by the way, um, there are these other people here, just letting you know, right. right? No false promises of like, everything will be perfect as soon as you walk in. Ding! That wouldn't be true. He tells them that there'll be work to be done um, of some kind. He doesn't say you'll kill them all, but he says that there are already people there. And then he reminds them um in this chiastic way of i have heard your shriek i've seen the oppression now walk and then he kind of zooms in on on uh moshe and an avraham-esque way right only instead of sending you to a land that you don't know i'm sending you to a land that you do know and instead of forsaking your fathers you're going to this counterfeit father um in order to cause my people to leave right yeah, and interesting that he says that you are going to cause them to leave. Yes. Right before we see God saying a lot of, and I'm going to cause all yes. of these things. And now we have him saying, you are going to be the one that is going to make this happen. Right. Right. So, um, or he doesn't, it's not in the future tense, it's imperative. So he says, cause my people to leave. Um, so he gives him a direction, but yeah. it's up to Moshe whether he's going to step into that or not. And right. that's why there's this back and forth that's going to go on for two chapters. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, to me, that really explains why he has all these questions, you know, uh, when it's stated in that way. Um, and so uh, that brings us to the end of part one. Yeah. I think that that's a good place to pause our um, episode for this week. Yeah, um, I agree. Uh, And we'll get to part two for the following week, verses 11 through 22, and kind of dig into the back and forth that they start to have. So I'm excited for that. Yeah, if you have questions, you can send them to textinus at gmail.com. Um, that is the place to send your textinus questions, and we will answer them on the air. This has been the Text in Us podcast. Thank you so much for joining us, and we hope that you will join us again next week when we finish off Genesis, oh my goodness, Exodus chapter 3. We'll get it eventually. Bye!